Good morning. It's good to see all of you. I don't know if that microphone likes me. Um, happy Thanksgiving week. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, my life group got to celebrate together uh, Thanksgiving yesterday. I know I got some family ones coming up. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I do love the fact that in our culture, we actually just have this day uh, set aside to celebrate and just be thankful uh, for all the ways that God has blessed us. And we have a ton to thank Him for. And as we continue on in our Genesis series uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the life of a man who had a ton to thank God for. And we've already been introduced to this guy. His name is Abram. We've been talking about him for the last couple weeks. If you missed that, I'm just going to give you a quick uh, update on kind of where we've been so you know what's going on in the story here this morning. Uh, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so in it we really get a great foundation for understanding who God is, who we are, and uh, one of the things that we've seen is that God created human beings, and he has this great desire, honestly, to bless them. And by that I mean he, he wants to give them that which is good. We see that creation was good. Uh, we see that he blessed the man and the woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply. And so God has this good plan and good desire for human beings. But with that, um, we see that humans sometimes don't always go along with that. And they rebelled against him. This, this sin uh, of choosing their own way over God's has resulted in all sorts of problems. Death entered into the world. Adam and Eve were kicked out of Eden, this awesome place that they got to live in before sin. Uh, there was even a worldwide flood that was necessary to wipe out almost all life on earth because of how wicked things had become. But God preserved humanity and all the animals as well through this righteous guy named Noah. And essentially, you kind of see there's this clean slate. You start over with the most righteous guy you can find. And uh, even with that, things still go off the rails pretty quickly again. And you see humanity falling back into sin. But through all of this, we've seen that God still has this great desire to bless humans. And we see this in the way that he calls this man named Abram. He calls this guy to go and leave his homeland and go to a place that he's going to show him. And when he goes there, <clears throat> he says that he's going to make Abram into a great nation, meaning he's going to give him a ton of descendants. He's going to give these descendants a specific land that they get to live in. Uh, this is the land that we call Israel today, but at the time it was known as Canaan. And then he even said that not only is he going to bless this man, Abram, and give him all these descendants in this land, but that the whole world is actually going to be blessed through Abram. So God makes all of these wonderful promises to Abram. And then right after that, we see that there's a famine in this land that God said he's going to give him. And so Abram leaves this, this promised land and goes down to Egypt. And he makes a big mistake while he's in Egypt. This is what we talked about last week. He says that his wife is actually his sister, and he does this to try and protect himself. He's worried that he's going to get killed because his wife is hot and people are going to want to kill him and take his wife. So he's like, okay, I'm just going to say she's my sister. It doesn't work out very well. It turns out that the king of the land, Pharaoh, ends up taking uh, Sarai, his wife, as his own. And it's only through God's miraculous intervention that they're able to get out of this situation. God starts to afflict Pharaoh's house with plagues. Uh, Pharaoh starts to realize this is because he's taken another man's wife. He gives Sarai back to Abram, and they leave Egypt. And that's where we left off last week. All right, so uh, with that, we are going to be 
into uh, Genesis chapter 13 this morning, but before we uh, dive in there, I just want to pray for our time. God, we thank you that you are a good God uh, that desires to bless, and that Lord, even when we consistently make mistakes and, and go astray, you have a desire to pull us back in. You have a desire to give that which is good, and Lord, we just ask that you would help us to be people that really seek your face. I thank you for everybody that's gathered here this morning. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you are here in this room this morning. And God, we just pray that you would work. Show us more of who you are. Make us into the people that you want us to be. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 13, and uh, we're just going to start by reading the first four verses, and we'll kind of go through it piece by piece. <clears throat> so Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Okay, we'll stop there for now. <clears throat> Abram's come up out of Egypt, and he's doing quite well. He comes out of there in great shape. He comes back with his wife uh, and all that belonged to him. In fact, he even got pretty rich while he was down in Egypt. He has a ton of livestock. He has silver and gold. He's got a diversified portfolio, so he's doing well there. Um, but even with all of this, I, I have to wonder actually how Abram was feeling when he came back into this land that God had initially promised him. It says he came back to this place where he was at the beginning. And I'm just, I can only speculate, right, that the text doesn't tell us exactly what Abram was feeling, but I, I think, man, what, what was he probably feeling at this time? Probably some relief that he had made it out of Egypt with his wife, that he got out of a really terrible situation. Maybe a lot of shame that he was wrestling with. I think I would probably be wrestling with that. If I had lied about my marriage in Egypt and, and passed my wife off to another person. Maybe some uncertainty about the future. You know, back at this place where he had originally pitched his tent between Bethel and Ai, and he made this altar and called on the name of the Lord, and God promised that he would give him this land. That was an awesome experience. And, and Abram uh, built an altar there even commemorating that. But now after leaving the land that God said he was going to give him, and after lying about his wife, and, and, and all this stuff that he had just been through, you have to wonder, was he dealing with any sort of uncertainty about his future? Was he wondering if maybe because he screwed up, did he compromise the promise of what God wanted to do? I don't know. I don't know, because the text doesn't tell me. I just can't pretend to know what he was thinking at this time. But... I do know there was probably a range of emotions that he was likely to feel. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination for me because I can relate to seeing God bless me in my life and then going on to live unfaithfully in some way. And I think most of you can probably relate to this too. It's like, man, God was so good to me and then I went and screwed up and messed up. And, and you, you wonder like, man, what, what am I, what, what's, what's he going to do? And I think that in these times where you're like, man, God was good, I've screwed up, the best thing that you can do is just repent and return. 
Go back to the Lord. He doesn't want to just keep you at an arm's distance. And I love that Abram, after his failings in Egypt, comes back up to this place where God had initially made this promise to him. You know, we see in Genesis 12, 7, 8, this is that spot he returns to going back in time before Egypt. It says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. When Abram comes back and returns to this place, I think he has to be remembering that moment. He has to be remembering the powerful experience he had with God's promise and him calling upon the name of the Lord. And with this, I believe he probably gained a lot of confidence in remembering that God still wanted what was good for him. Still wanted to bless him. I think this was probably a very healing time for Abram. And I just want to ask, like, have you ever had a time in your life like this where you just have to come back to God after you've, you've screwed up in some major way and you have to remind yourself of the promises of the Lord? That's what Abram's doing here at the altar. We need these times of repentance and remembrance. Right? They, they help us, especially when we know that we're going to be confronted with some sort of new challenge that's likely to come along our way. We see God's faithfulness. We screw up. We repent. We need to repent. We need to remember God's faithfulness because we know sometime down the road there's probably going to be another challenge we face where it's going to be hard to live faithfully for the Lord. We don't know what form it's going to come in, but it's probably going to come. And that's what would happen for Abram. He faced one major challenge with the famine. He faced another challenge going down to Egypt. He comes, he worships, he repents. Well, he's about to face a new challenge. And it might be one that's a little bit unexpected. It's actually the challenge that can come with prosperity. He almost gets too rich for his own good. Let's read on here in Genesis 13, 5 to 7. It says, Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling in the land. We'll stop there. So Abram's got his nephew Lot with him. And both of these guys are doing pretty well. We were introduced to Lot back in Genesis 11. We were first introduced to Abram as well. And we see that Lot is actually Abram's nephew. Uh, Lot's father died an untimely death, and so it's likely that Abram was actually probably some sort of a father figure or caretaker for Lot. Lot has been along with Abram through all these different journeys. Uh, they left their homeland of Ur together. They both went down to Egypt and, and were there when the famine was there in the land of Canaan, and now they've both returned back into this land that God said that he was going to give Abram. They have a long history together. They were family but at the same time, Lot is a grown man at this point. And it seems that he was actually doing pretty well financially, too. And both of them had so many flocks and herds that the land literally could not sustain uh, both of them. It takes a lot of land to let animals graze, right? They're, they eat a lot of grass and vegetation and whatever else. And so there's just not enough space for them. 
It's kind of like uh, during Welcome Week when you're trying to play Ultimate Frisbee and there's just like not enough space on the campus, right? Those of you that have been through it, it's like there, there's strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of, of Abram. Just like there's strife between the Ultimate Frisbee players and the cricket players. It's, it's, yeah, there's just, there's just not enough space on the land uh, to, to accommodate everybody's needs. And those of you that have gone through this, especially... During Welcome Week, you know how frustrating it is to be in a situation where you feel like there's just not enough room for you to do what you need to do. <clears throat> but in this case, it was more than just an annoyance. You know, this land that Abram had returned to, this is the land that he was supposed to be in. He had already left it once. And he didn't want to leave it again. He wants to be faithful to God. He couldn't just pack up and go find some other land that was more fertile that, that him and Lot could both share together. So there's a challenge for Abram. How is he going to handle this? <laughs> that him and his and Lot, it's a, pro, it's a good problem, but it's a problem. They're so rich. What are they going to do? Uh, <clears throat> so let's read on here. Genesis 13, 8 and 9. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please, separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. All right, let's stop there. This is a remarkable reaction, actually, from Abram. Remember I told you, now I know in the text there it says, for we are brothers, but that's just a term that's used to communicate to their family. Realistically, Abram is actually Lot's uh, uncle. So he has seniority, and this is, a very, this is a culture that values seniority a lot. Abram was a whole generation ahead of Lot, he had probably, we can't be sure about this, but probably been some sort of a father figure or caretaker. If anything, Abram is the one that should get to choose the part of the land that he wants, and Lot should have to take the scraps. But after Abram sees that there's a problem, rather than saying, no, I'm just going to take the best of the land for myself, he actually makes Lot an offer. He says, you know what? You take what you want, and, and I'll, I'll go with whatever is left over. You know, what I see in this is that Abram was willing to put peace with Lot over his own personal preferences. Choosing peace over preference. And guys, this is something that you are probably going to find yourself in from time to time as a Christian. You're, you're going to have some sort of quarrel, some sort of strife with people, some sort of tension, and you're going to have the opportunity to make a choice. Am I going to just seek after what I want the most for myself? Or am I willing to lay down my own rights and to take into consideration what this other person might want and actually make a sacrifice that will give them the best? You look at this, Paul instructs the Philippians to live with this kind of mindset. Philippians 2, 3 and 4 says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And that's what Abram's doing here. He's not just looking out for his own interests. He says, you know what, Lot, I'm actually going to give you a choice here. He wants to pursue peace. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. You, Christian, do you care about pursuing peace with all people as much as it's possible for you? I think a lot of the time we value our own preferences over peace. I think a lot of the time we value our own preferences over unity. 
Now, of course, I, I don't believe <clears throat> that this means that you have to bow down to every person's desire, whatever it may be, whenever they might want to take advantage of you, okay? There's plenty of examples in the Bible where both Jesus and his apostles have strife and tension with people, where they keep doing things that they don't want them to do, right? The Pharisees didn't want Jesus to keep doing the things he was doing. Same with the apostles. They didn't want them to keep preaching Jesus. Obviously, they continued on doing that. Why? Well, because that was something that they actually needed to do. That was God's calling on their life. It was important. They were actually loving people better by continuing to do that than they would have been by choosing to just stop because somebody asked them. It wasn't because they were being selfish that they continued in these things that caused division. It was actually because they were being loving. So of course there are exceptions to this. But there are plenty of times where we are able to lay down our own personal preferences and desires in order to serve another person, to live at peace with them. And you know, we do this not because we're weak, but because we're strong. The person that is willing to sacrifice and lay down their own preferences so that somebody else can have the best is not the weak person. That's actually the strong person. A weak person always does what other people want because they're afraid of what will happen if they don't. But a strong person does what other people want because he loves them. And he trusts that his future is secure regardless of whether he gets his way or not. And honestly, this is the situation I believe Abram found himself in. It actually didn't really matter which part of the land that he got. Because he knew no matter what, God was going to take care of him. Remember, he'd just been down in Egypt. He had this failure. What's he do? He comes back up to this altar that he had previously built, with the Lord, uh, built to the Lord. And what happens? His mind gets set right. He worships. He remembers this promise that God's made to him. At, when you understand that the Lord is, is taking care of you, you are able to live with so much more freedom than the person that doesn't. The promise of God frees him from the worry, the kind of worry that he had that dominated his life in Egypt. And it empowers him to be generous. You realize that faith creates the ability to be generous. When, when we do not have any faith that the Lord cares for us, He's watching over us, he, he, wants to, to, he knows what's going on in our lives, He knows what we need, if we don't trust any of that, then what do we do? We worry. We hoard. We're not generous. Why? Because we think the only person looking out for us is, is me. And I better do everything I can to take care of myself. When you believe that there's actually a real God who loves you, sees you, knows your needs, and wants to care for you, that empowers you to be a generous person. And so Abram is actually able to, ex to extend generosity to Lot here because he knows that no matter what he ends up with, God already told him what he's going to do. He's going to make it. He's going to have all these descendants. He's going to be turned into a great nation. So why squabble over what kind of land he gets? I love how Jesus wants us to understand this. Guys, this is huge. I think that this is probably one of the things that would make one of the biggest differences in our lives as a church. If we came to really understand the way that God actually cares for us, it will do wonders on the kind of anxiety and fear that I know so many of us struggle with deeply. And so you probably heard me share this passage over and over again, but I'm going to do it again because I feel like it needs to keep happening. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. This is Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount. It says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat 
or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you? You have little faith. Do not worry then saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. I, I don't know why this, this is, but I feel like worry and fear and anxiety are just such they have such a foothold in the lives of, of so many Christians. We struggle with trusting that we actually serve a God who cares for us. Who has good things planned for us. And, and you know what? It, it may not turn out exactly the way that you thought it needed to in your head. But that doesn't mean the Lord isn't going to be there in the future. It doesn't mean that He doesn't even maybe have something better planned for you. Abram didn't need to take it into his own hands to know exactly what part of the land he was going to get. He was able to trust that the Lord was going to provide for him. And with that, he's able to be generous. Faith breeds generosity, but doubt breeds selfishness. So man, may we be generous people that are full of faith. You see the kind of generosity and, and service that Christians are called to? We do that not just because we have faith and we want to be obedient, but our faith actually empowers us to even do those things. It, it, it's virtually it's impossible to live the kind of life that Jesus calls us to if we don't trust that he's going to take care of us. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm on this journey with you guys. I'm not saying like I have it all figured out. There's plenty of times where I struggle with, with fear and anxiety and doubt and faith, all these kind of things. But I'm telling you, this is the biggest antidote to all of those kind of problems that I know so many of us are struggling with on the inside. Remembering that God knows you, loves you, and cares for you. And so our faith not only empowers us to be generous, but it starts to transform the things that we actually care about. And we come to prioritize things different than how we used to. We start to care about people a lot more than we care about possessions. So Abram makes a generous, loving, and sacrificial offer to Lot. See how Lot responds. Let's go back here in Genesis 13, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was, excuse me, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Stop there. 
Lot's given the choice of where he wants to go. He looks up and he takes the best land that he can see. Now, did Lot do anything wrong? I'm not sure. Sometimes you'll read commentaries and sermons and stuff. They kind of throw Lot under the bus. I don't know that I always agree with that. Um, I don't think we have enough information necessarily to say whether Lot did anything wrong here. Abram made an honest offer. Lot made what seemed to be a reasonable decision. I personally wouldn't look down on him for this. Um, as, you know, if, if he just said, well, no, you take the best of the land. And Abram says, no, you take it. They'd kind of be stuck in an infinite loop, right? Uh, so, <laughs> so it's like when your, your mom and your, your grandpa like, go out to dinner together and they're both like fighting. No, I'm paying for the check. No, I'm paying for the check. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been in that situation, but I, I've seen that. Someone has to do something at some point, right? So I, I'm not saying that Lot necessarily did anything wrong here. Uh, now, while I, I don't know that we can explicitly say that from the text, I, I will say that we can be clear that he didn't make a good decision, um, even if it was on accident. And there's some clues to this even in the text. One that's very interesting is the, the text explicitly speaks about how Lot moved eastward. And this is, this is kind of interesting. I just, the Bible nerd in me wanted to point this out to you guys. Um, when you see in early Genesis, we've actually, whenever people have been moving east, we've seen that they've been headed towards trouble. I just want to point this out to you. Uh, Adam and Eve, Genesis 3.24. This is right after Adam and Eve sinned. They're cast out of the garden. He drives them out, and where do they go? East of the garden. God puts this, this flaming sword there on the east side of it. Um, showing that that was the direction in which they were pushed out. What about Cain? So Cain is the guy that murders his brother Abel, and he ends up getting punished. It says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, how about the Tower of Babel? We saw that bad things happen there. All these people come together, and they're trying to make a name for themselves. God scatters them. But what were they, where were they traveling when this happened? Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone, and they used tar for mortar. And we see that God would eventually scatter them. And now... We have Lot, who's going towards Sodom, and what direction is that? East. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Um, it's probably more I could get into that, but just from a literary standpoint, it's pretty interesting how Moses, the author, is pointing this out, where we can kind of see when they're moving in this direction, they're generally headed towards trouble. So I'm not saying if you're trying to decide between taking a job in like Pittsburgh or Indianapolis that you should choose Indianapolis because to the West. I, I think that would be a poor application of that theme, um, but we, we are picking up a little bit on what the author is likely telling us and foreshadowing by this idea of moving east. Anyway, Lot looks up. He, saws, he sees this land uh, from a distance. It looks good. It's well watered everywhere, and uh, that's a big plus, right? Water is necessary for growing vegetation, which he needs a lot of to take care of all these flocks and herds, the reason that he had to separate from Abram in the first place. Now, we've seen this theme in Genesis, uh, not only of people moving east and getting into trouble, but this, we've seen a theme in, in Genesis of people evaluating the quality of something for themselves and oftentimes actually judging poorly on this. Uh, we've seen very much that looks can be deceiving. We saw this with Adam and Eve. Right? God told them not to eat this fruit, but when they looked at it, they saw it, evaluated it for themselves, and decided that it was good. Well, it wasn't. 
but they were, they were fooled. Uh, we also saw in a pretty strange passage, I'm not going to have time to get back into this, but in Genesis 6, uh, you can go back and listen to the sermon I preached on this. It's on Spotify and on our website. Uh, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. That word beautiful there is actually the same word for good in Hebrew. And they t- t- uh, took wives for themselves that they were not supposed to have. Um, so they also have made an evaluation for themselves that something was good, took something that they were not supposed to have, and it did not go well for them. That was, this is one of the things that was right before the flood. And then now we see that Lot seems to do something similar. He lifts up his eyes, he sees, makes a, a judgment about what he thinks is good, and moves out towards this place. Now, I don't know if Lot was acting in disobedience the way that Adam and Eve clearly were and the way that the sons of God seemed to be in Genesis 6. Uh, that all depends on if you think that Lot was leaving the promised land. Uh, it's very hard to be sure where exactly the location of Sodom is. Um, it, it could have been maybe right on the border of the promised land. It could have been right outside of it. We don't know. But even there, it's like, was Lot really supposed to stay in the promised land? Uh, we, we can argue about that. Um, but regardless of what you think about Lot's decision here, and whether he was being disobedient in any way, it will become abundantly clear in the coming chapters that he made a bad decision. And there's even some foreshadowing about that here in the text. It even says this is before the time that God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So something's going to happen. Um, and it's, we see in Genesis 13, 13, it says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. There can be things that look good on the surface, but they're not always good in reality. And we are much better off trusting that what God has told us is good, trusting in that rather than trying to make an evaluation for ourselves. In this case, I would say that the way that you can judge a good place to live is not so much whether it's well watered, but I'd care a lot more about the people that are living there that people are more important than possessions and places. Sodom was a very nice, fertile valley, but was it a good place to live? Absolutely not. And we're going to see that Lot's going to run into into problems here, not because he's running out of water. He's got plenty of water, plenty of vegetation in Sodom, but the people cause much bigger problems. I love this proverb when I'm thinking about how to, to prioritize things in my life. Proverbs 15, 17 Better is a dish of vegetables where love is served than a fatted ox served with hatred. Now, those are strong words, right? Like, I don't like vegetables very much. I love a good steak. Uh, But you know what? Vegetables are better than steak if you get to share them with people that love you versus people that hate you. And when I think about this reality of how people are really what influences our lives far more than the possessions we have or the place that we live, um, I actually, I think about my time up at, at Bowling Green State University, right? I, I, that was my alma mater. I, I did my undergrad there. Now, BGSU, um, well, it's, Bowling Green is not exactly a, a tourist town. Has anyone ever gotten a postcard from Bowling Green, Ohio before? Probably not, okay? Uh, there isn't much to see there. It's pretty much all flat farmland. Um, the, there's like two hills, and one of them's artificial. Uh, not, not exactly a tourist destination. I, I lived in the dorms for three years out of my four years there. I lived on the very corner of campus in a tiny little room shared with another person. 
Um, I didn't have a lot of possessions by American standards, and even if I did, I wouldn't have had a place to put them, because again, I lived in a tiny room with two people. Um, yet, my college years were awesome. Loved, I loved living in Bowling Green, Ohio. Why? Well, it wasn't because it was picturesque. It wasn't because it was beautiful. It wasn't because it had an amazing recreation. There was always something going on in the town. It wasn't because the sports were great. It was because the people. I loved getting to share life with the people there. They loved me and helped me grow closer to God. And this is such a better indicator of, of quality of life, whether a place is a good place to live is about the people rather than whether it looks good on an Instagram reel. You know, Lot journeys off into this land that looks good, but it wasn't actually a good place to live. And we'll pick up with him later and see how things go on with him while he's living there in Sodom, but that's a story for another day. Right. So far, we've seen that Abram responded to a challenge. He struggled with responding to the challenge in Egypt. He's responded great to this challenge. He chose peace with Lot over his own preferences. He chose generosity over selfishness. He chose faith over fear. And we see how Lot responded to Abram's offer, that he took the land that he thought was best. Now, I want to close by seeing the way that God responds to Abram. Pick back up in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which you see. I will give it to you and your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So here we see that God reaffirms his promise to Abram. It wasn't something new. It wasn't, uh, it was the same kind of thing, right? I'm giving you this land. I'm giving you all these kind of descendants. Um, but with this, we see a couple of things about God. First off, we see that God is faithful. He made this promise to Abram before, and he's not, he didn't put any conditions on it. And he's not going back on it now. Abram may have gone off and, and, and uh, screwed up a ton when he was in Egypt. It, it what, didn't mean that the deal was off. Nothing was going to stop God from fulfilling this promise that he made to Abram. Not even Abram's own failures. It certainly wasn't going to be stopped by famine or a lack of water. Lot goes and gets the well-watered area in the Valley of the Jordan. That's fine. It's not going to stop what God does to fulfill His promise to Abram. And we see not only God's faithfulness, but we also see His generosity. Man, look at all the stuff that God is giving to Abram. Lift up your eyes as far as you can see. North, south, east, west. I'm giving it all to you. I'm going to give you so many descendants that they won't even be able to be numbered. You know, as much as this promise to Abram shows the generosity of God, we get an even clearer picture of his radical generosity as the rest of the Bible unfolds. And I would say that this is most clearly shown to us at the cross. You see, I really believe that all of Scripture is telling us a story about who God is, who we are, and what he's done to fix this relationship that's broken between us.
And it culminates that the kind of climax to some degree is when God comes and takes on flesh and walks amongst us. There's a man named Jesus. And Jesus lives a perfect life and he dies on the cross. Dies a criminal's death on the cross. And you ask, why? Why, why is the only perfect man that's ever living dying on a cross? Murdered there. And the reason is because he chose to go to the cross. So that the sin that you and I are guilty of, meaning that we have, we've rebelled against God, we've done what's wrong, we know from early Genesis the, pun, the punishment of sin is death. That's what it brings. And Jesus goes and he dies on the cross saying, I'll take that punishment for you. I'll take that punishment that you deserve. I'll put it on me. And not only that, but this righteous life, this perfect life that I have, holy, blameless, perfect before God, I'm going to give that to you. That'll be credited to you if you put faith in me. It's a very generous offer. Everything you have is bad. Everything I have is good. Give me all of your bad and I'll give you all my good. Does it get any more generous than that? You know, Abram sacrificed in order to be generous and make peace with Lot. Jesus sacrificed his life in order to be generous and make peace between us and God. Ephesians 2, 4-7 says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. It doesn't get any more generous than what God has done for us. You know, Abram allowed Lot to go off and, and have this good land. God has given us a good land. It talks about raising us up to the heavenly places. We have an eternal dwelling place with God himself. Abram was promised that he was going to be given not just a land, but that, that he would be given a descendants. So much to be like the dust of the earth. Guys, when, when we become Christians, not only do we get welcomed into the Father's house, but we get welcomed into the Father's family. We're brought into a giant family. As much as the dust of the earth. We have a radically generous God. And it was shown in His promise to Abram, but it's shown even more so in the offer He makes us at the cross. And so what's our response? Well, I would say two things that Abram actually does here. The first is that we walk. Genesis 13, 17, when God is speaking to Abram, he tells him he's going to give him, he says, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. You know, God, God calls Abram to go and walk this land. He wants him to live in it, to experience it, right? He doesn't want Abram to just conceptually know, oh yeah, that's cool, like God gave me this line. He's like, no, I, I want you to actually go experience this. Live in it. And guys, when I, when I say that God has given us new life, he doesn't want that to just be a concept for us. He doesn't just want it to be like, oh yeah, theologically I know that. He wants us to actually live in it. 
to walk in this new life that He has given us. To, to lay down our old lives that are, are full of sin, which is inherently destructive. Right? I was talking about just even how our faith frees us from a lot of things like anxiety and fear and worry and this kind of stuff. Any kind of sin, you name it, it it's inherently destructive. That's why God wants us to stay away from it. And he says, you know what, not only am I going to forgive you of that, but I'm actually raising you up to new life. I'm making you a new person, and I want you to walk in this. I'm actually going to put my spirit in you. He's going to transform you, and I want you to experience abundant life. Look, Galatians 5, 16 to 25, gets into this idea of us actually walking in this new life, this, this gift that God has given us. It says this, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. What a, a beautiful call that we have. We've been given life by the Spirit. Let's actually walk in it. Let's lay down all this kind of stuff that God, God, God wants us to stay out of that because it kills us. The deeds of the flesh are evident, he says. And he says you, you stay in this stuff, you're, you're staying dead when you stay in that. Get up and walk by the Spirit. Get up and walk through the land. Get up and, and, and walk in what God has actually chosen to give us. You know, righteousness is a gift, not a burden. I don't know how we get this spot where it's almost like we think like, man, God's trying to take my fun away by giving me all these commands or something. That is never something God has ever wanted to do. When God teaches us to walk in righteousness, He's doing so because He knows that that's actually what's best for us. 1 John 5.3, I don't have this on the screen, but I love this. It says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. The point of God's commands is not to burden you down and give you a miserable life so that you'll get your payoff in eternity. We have an awesome payoff coming in eternity. But it's not like it's that we have to get through like a sucky life here. God is actually trying to help us live the best life that we can live here too by showing us how to walk in righteousness and giving us the power to do it. So man, like, get up and walk. Live in this life that God has given us. How do we do that? Like, a lot of it comes from consistently renewing our minds, right? We have to be thinking the, the right way. We have to... Um, I honestly think that worship is something that's going to help with that a lot. 
setting, setting our minds to, to, to know what's actually good. That, that we look at the desires of the Spirit and see these are actually better than the desires of the flesh. We have a community that helps us. We talk about these things all the time, so I'm not going to get into all of it right now. Um, but I told you Abram did two things. He was called to get up and walk through the land, and there was something else. And that other thing is worship. It says Genesis 13, 18. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. There he built an altar to the Lord. We've seen Abram build an altar to the Lord before, right? He did that back when he camped between Bethel and Ai. And now we see him do it here again. As God has reaffirmed his promise to Abram about what he is going to do, Abram is moved to worship again. And when we see this great faithfulness of our God, we see this great generosity of our God, it should be something that moves us to worship. And it's cool because we get to do that, right? And we're about to do that here in the form of singing. You can do it in the form of the way that you live. Abram did it in the form of constructing an altar. But when we worship, it's just we're giving God the glory and the praise that he deserves. Amen. Let us be people that worship him with, with songs of praise. Let us be people that worship him by walking in the life that he's given us. Let us be people that worship him by telling others about him. We have a good, awesome, generous God. So let's walk in the life that he's given us and let's worship him. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, that you are so good to us. I, I thank you, um, Lord, for the way that you really do transform us. Like You, you allow us to be people that are full of, of faith and, and that know you're going to take care of us, that are able to be generous, that are able to be f- free of, of fear and anxiety. God, I thank you for the fact that you show us righteousness and you give us the power to walk in it. And Lord, we confess like we're, we're weak, we struggle. I know I do. I know, Lord, that you call me to walk by the Spirit. But I also know that the, the desire of the flesh is against that. And, and we wouldn't need instruction and encouragement to walk by the Spirit if we didn't also feel that temptation from the flesh. And so God, I, I just pray for all of us. I know that we experience it. I know I do the temptation to walk by the flesh and not by the Spirit. Lord, I, I pray for everyone who's, who's struggling here that you would just transform our minds to, to really see your goodness, to see that you're an amazingly faithful and generous God, that your way really is better than whatever it is that we were trying to pursue aside from you. God, we, we might try to make our own evaluations of what we think is best in life, like Adam and Eve did or like Lot did, but God, we, we just, we don't know. Sometimes we, we know you've told us that something is bad and we go for it the way Adam and Eve did. Sometimes like we may not know whether it's good or bad. I don't know if Lot knew that about Sodom or not, but God, we just confess that we need your guidance in our lives and we thank you that you've given it to us. We thank you for your word that you've shown us what's actually good. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to walk in it. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you for who you are. We pray this in your son's awesome name.